Welcome to the AFIRE Podcast. It's the middle of May 2020, and some people in some cities are beginning to transition back to working in their offices. It's a challenging, uncertain, and uneven process for everyone. And what we're all learning right now will likely have a significant long-term impact for the office users and investors. So today I asked Peter Graywolf, who runs uh, North American real estate investing from the Toronto offices of Munich-based WealthCap, to talk a bit about the future of office. So thank you, Peter, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. So office, what does the future look like now? The reality is uh, there's a lot that we don't know even about the short term. We do know that there is a floor to this crisis, and that's called the vaccine. And we are very optimistic that we're going to get to a vaccine very quickly. And all indications are that all the resources that we're throwing at it will get us there much faster than humans have ever developed a vaccine in the past. But that said, I mean, even the seasonal flu, which we've studied for decades, there's so many things we don't know yet about that for example, we don't even know why the seasonal flu is seasonal. Um, but so you can basically, I like to look at it as two phases. One, which is that takes you until we get a vaccine. And then the second phase is the post, post-vaccine, uh, which is the true post-COVID phase. And the first phase is really just a coping phase. And in the short term, what we've seen so far in my experience is that, you know, basically landlords and managers are trying to solve the operational problems of how you get six feet between people, reduce touch points, um, control access to buildings, that's that sort of thing. And in the last town hall that you hosted for a fire, Despina Katsikakis did a great job of, of explaining um, all the research that she's done on that topic. And so far, asset managers that I have and the ones that I've spoken with, they basically have said, you know, they're everyone is setting setting up those mechanisms to control flow through the buildings, but no one's really taking responsibility for policing any of those rules. And they've specifically, in some cases, instructed security guards not to police them because they don't want as managers and us as owners to take on that liability and that responsibility. I mean, I think interestingly, uh, as an aside, there is some good that comes out of that. Air France, for example, just announced that finally they will be boarding planes from the rear of the plane to the front instead of the way that we've always been doing it, which is from the front to the rear and creates huge bottlenecks. So I think, yes, I think there is some some good that will come out of this too. Um, but generally, I think the assumption that we've all been operating on is that um, it's not going to be like a light switch where suddenly everyone goes back. It'll be a very slow, progressive return to work with certain businesses starting up before others and 
businesses starting in shifts or crews where perhaps half the staff arrives on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the other half only works Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, for example, our office, our head office in Munich is doing something similar where a third of the office um, is only in on site at any given point in time. And there's always a third that's, uh, or two thirds that are working from home. But uh, so as people start coming back to work, we have this opportunity to start testing the flow of people coming through the building and, and hopefully we'll never be at full capacity the way that we may have been in January. I mean, certainly elevators, which used to handle 15 people and now only handle two, uh, that will create a serious bottleneck for us if everyone's coming back to work at the same time. It's striking how much of a kind of experimental phase we're going to have to go through in terms of all the all the details of how does that work really? Um, how do people need to adjust their schedules, their expectations just to deal with the elevator? What is it going to be like to have a third of your office present at any given time? And I have a feeling we'll be making some adjustments this summer as we learn just how this works really. Um, and it will probably be different for different companies and, and different regions uh, in terms of how people manage this. But it, it, it sounds to me from what you're saying and from what a lot of people are saying is that we're, we're about to enter into an experimental phase as much as there's been some good thinking from Cushman Wakefield and others around what does a six foot office actually look like? It's going to take some time for it to become real. For sure. It'll be, uh, it, there will be no immediate new normal that we suddenly jump to. It'll be a testing and a retesting and a try this, no, try that. And a continuous dialogue with all of our ten tenants and stakeholders uh, to try to optimize the way things function and operate. If I can touch a little bit on childcare, that's a massive issue that uh, I think has not been talked about too much. And, uh, you know, early on in this crisis, a friend of mine said to me, uh, it's it's quite okay working from home. He gets up early in the morning. He uh, works basically until he falls asleep at night and he doesn't have to commute anywhere. He obviously doesn't have any kids. Um, but uh, for, for any families with kids, uh, the childcare issue and working from home right now is a, uh, is quite a massive ordeal. Uh, the, for example, there's a, there's an architecture office here in Toronto that has uh, had had to hire 30 additional staff just to cover the lost productivity due to childcare. And and you know, as an employer, how do you deal with that going forward on a long term basis? Obviously, that's not a long term solution. What happens once uh, we get the tremendous news that we have an incredibly effective vaccine and it gets somehow distributed to everyone in the world? What happens next? Well, there's certainly been a lot of discussion about in the midterm um, whether or not office office users will need more space or will they need less space more space obviously because you want to have more space between individuals at any given point in time cubicles need to be farther apart but less now that we've proven that we can all work from home part of the time and so how will those two opposing forces net out i personally don't see tenants spending more money on rent in the midterm um, with maybe a few exceptions, uh, um, just because 
there's an economic argument and I don't see that there's a lot of tenants out there that will say, hey, you know, um, we have money now to spend on more rent. Oxford Economics is currently predicting a potential 40% drop in our GDP. I think it would be very difficult for a tenant to go to spending more money on rent and taking more space. Um, that said, there there is a good chance, I think, in the sort of short to midterm that tenants will be taking less space or giving up extra space and relying more heavily on people working remotely. Uh, for example, there is a uh, technology com company here in Ontario in Kitchener-Waterloo uh, called OpenText, and they recently announced that um, they will be giving up 50% of their office space and um, allowing always a good portion of their staff to simply work remotely. And um, they've basically said, you know, we tested now over the last eight weeks and working remotely works for us as a business and we don't need, uh, we don't need the office space. So let's, let's try to save that money. Well, and, and perhaps they're also realizing for some workers, not all workers, but for some workers, they might even be more productive in an at-home environment. But that certainly is concerning uh, for owners of office buildings. Um, do you think that the location of office might be impacted in terms of where the high value spaces have been in the past and where they might be in the future? Well, we've certainly spent a lot of time and money thinking about, um, well, at least in, in cities that are, are um, serviced by subways and good public transit systems about being on those public transit systems and on the main subway lines and um, how that's a tremendous benefit in getting people in and out. And uh, as we even develop buildings on subway lines, we often use far less parking counts. But now in this, at least in the short term, until we have a vaccine where you can safely use the subway again and use public transit, I think there'll be a tremendous pressure for people to avoid using the subway if at all possible and probably return to driving into work. Uh, and so that means, you know, being on the subway is not as important as it has been, but being able to, or being ha having good access to good parking, um, is much more important. I think also as we start to explore different potential um, shifts, are people, some of the people working later and earlier than maybe they used to do, um, we, we have to rethink what kind of amenities do we need for those varying types of, um, uh, of work schedules that, that are as yet undiscovered. And I mean, going back to commuting once again, uh, I think people will probably think a little bit harder about, you know, if there is another crisis of unnamed sources, will I be able to get to and from work quite easily? Um, and you see now, for example, there's a, at first we ran out of flour and, and yeast in, in the stores. Now we've run out of bicycles too, because everyone's out buying a bicycle to try to figure out how to get, get around. Absolutely. And I think people are kind of looking at mobility in general and, and really questioning, um, 
the way we've done it before. I, I think another thing that's interesting about this that has just I've just observed it recently being talked about is that we're becoming aware generally of risks that we weren't paying attention to. So one of them being the quality and the health of the air in a subway station. Um, so as we've built a lot of office buildings right on top of subway stations, they're sharing in many cases the same air. Uh, this is especially true in New York, but there are lots of other cities as well. I wonder if there, if this will uh, turbocharge concerns around the health of a building, around the safety of the air, of the surfaces, et cetera, to an extent that building on top of a subway has a different kind of cost than it might have had a year ago. It's possible. I mean, certainly the focus on air quality will never be higher now than it has been. And uh, I'm sure testing of air quality will be done much more rigorously. And and I've even read an article that was saying we actually still need a lot of science even about the coronavirus on this subject, because we don't know, is it better to be in a closed office or is it better to be in an office that's an open space given the airflow and the air quality in those which may be much worse in a closed office and so i think we still need to collect a lot of data in order to be able to determine what's the best course of action on that part of what i'm hearing from you and and, and from others is this notion of we don't know yet that that we are still learning all the details on this, which means probably the best kind of position to be in is one of flexibility and resiliency as we as we learn how this is going to evolve. To not to not build too much for one thing, but to be able to kind of look at things that are happening and, and respond to it. Yeah, and we actually have one uh, tenant in our building in Washington who happily signed their lease in January and are now moving towards, you know, designing their space and um, working towards the build out. And I haven't specifically heard of any changes over the last couple of weeks, but I'm curious to see now whether or not um, they will really rethink that the, the way that they are structuring their space and, and, you know, when they started thinking about it and doing space planning in January to now, uh, we live in a, a completely different uh, environment. And, and I'm curious to see how they will adapt or revise their initial thoughts and designs. So we've run out of time here, but um, would love any kind of last thoughts that you might have, uh, Peter, on, you know, what is the smart investor in office on a global basis focused on now? I mean, I think, you know, if you look at with with a focus on office, I think you really have to think about what are those long term business trends that we had seen before, like AI and machine learning, and how do they mesh with the new type of ecosystem that we will be forced to work in going forward. And if I even look at how my kids function, you know, they're very happy to uh, do Zoom calls and do Teams meetings with their classmates at school, but they still need a certain amount of interaction with those people. And, you know, you think about these are the people who in 10 years will be working in these offices. How will they 
be most productive and what kind of businesses will they want to work for? And those are the kinds of trends I think that we have to start thinking about. Most investors have a 10 or 15 or 20 year investment hold period. And so um, it's it's difficult, but you need to focus on those long-term trends that some of which had been had been already occurring and some of which are will be new trends now. Um, the reality is in the short term, we're still experiencing a tremendous amount of volatility in basically every data point, every market. And um, it's difficult to invest in volatility, but uh, if you are clever, you'll be compensated for that volatility and that additional risk. And uh, if you can mitigate it and um, find niches uh, that are more attractive, then you will get compensated and uh, hopefully benefit from that. Excellent advice. I think you're absolutely right. This is a time of change, a time of crisis. Um, there's as much opportunity as there is risk in this environment. And uh, I think it's if there was ever a time for us to be truly mindful and uh, have our eyes wide open. This is that time. So thank you, Peter, for spending some time with us today. Thank you very much, Gunnar. And before we close out this podcast, I wanted to make sure we took some time to thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners, who make it possible for AFIRE to provide programming such as these podcasts. Thank you. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.